Hello, welcome to Solomon's Temple. This episode, we are going to be talking about talking. We're going to be talking about talking in a very specific kind of way. I'm going to go over Rebecca Kukla's essay, Performative Force, Convention, and Discursive Justice. The possibility of a conversation and transmitting the information you want goes beyond simply reading and examining the information itself and accepting it, because there is sort of a gamesmanship that is going on when information is being put up against each other. There is a certain power struggle element involved with argumentation or getting across certain information to certain people. People have presuppositions and attitudes towards their own sets of knowledge, and if there's another set of knowledge that interrupts a certain kind of idea or attitude that they think they are supposed to have, the idea then would be to protect whatever it is they have solidarity with. There is a politicization of the speech act. Even if it goes beyond reason, it still exists, because you do not want any of your power to be undermined. When people want to uphold power, they want to keep it, and I suppose right Rightfully so. But there's also acts of discursive injustice. Discursive injustice is created out of the instances of interpreted force by social convention, the phenomena of silencing, and the role of gamesmanship in social context, both implicit and explicit. Sometimes people, by habit, have a response to when hearing certain kinds of information. It's just their attitudes and norms have been formed by convention to think of what is being said in a specific way because it is most readily what they're used to and have been, giving, have been given into it because they think it is either true or true because everyone is saying it's true or talking about it in a specific way. Silencing is something like trying to keep people from hearing certain sets of information by either not broadcasting it, or in some way diverting the attention away from it in conversation so that the person uttering whatever they're uttering is not being examined and so that something else can take its place, or violently it's being suppressed or undermined in an unfair way. There's also a preset mode of arguing. There's sound bites that are being laid on top of certain instances so that a, a social context or a political, a political context can reign and so they could contain the minds of people in a sort of game and trick people into not looking outside of the utterance or being taken in by the utterance and being formed by that language construction. Kukla suggests that locutionary violence, locutionary being an utterance regarded in terms of its intrinsic meaning or reference, as distinct from function or purpose within a context. So people deny the speech act and it loses its power. It has, it's negated and not uptaken by the listener. It is not uptaken in the way that it is supposed to, so therefore it stops functioning the way it should. The meanings are being quashed away from any true determination that was supposed to happen with the utterance. So it's not being listened to in a way that wholly determines what has really been said. The recognition is not given recognition. It is not rendered into reality. It is sort of gaslit out of reality. Have you ever felt that when discussing something may be contentious, that what you have to say is getting derailed unfairly? That people aren't really listening, you don't feel heard. That's basically what is going on in, in the discursive injustice element of a speech convention. I have an example. One way to see this would be a counselor might speak to a new student that is female about the upcoming decision to choose a college major. 
Now, this is a very critical moment in your career, in your life career, potentially, overall. There's a decision you need to make. The, the act of discursive injustice occurs when the proposal of the student states fervently and strongly about her hopes to study philosophy. While the statement is grounded in the experience of the student, the counselor continues to suggest that child care and child development is a nice choice and might suggest that for her, along with a other atypical gendered disciplines. This very suggestion of being undermined about the desire latent in the person being philosophical, or maybe an engineer, is done by the conventional status of the context of the situation. If philosophy wasn't already dominated by men through history, and the antecedent conditions suggest manhood, then as the female approached the very force of her own convictions to the counselor, it was already within the context of the given situation that plays by its own field, by convention, and expectations, namely, contain the attitude of presenting the assented version of an institutionalized patriarchy, which will suggest to women, would you like to do this, that, or the other thing, rather than first knowing who this person is going in, what their aspirations are. There is a latent generation and expectation a severe lack of pragmatism surely will take place when a conversation and a performative act has power in what is being said, that there is a point to be made and that there is an impression to be had within your mind, within your heart, within your soul. But if someone wants to win the conversation and has a, a performative force or a theatrical act to make sure that those listening, that they are winning, that they are on the side of coming out of the conversation as the one who really knows best, as a sort of ego thing. And this is easily identified in an area of life of politics, where there needs to be group coherency. And if I were to su suggest that the problems with global warming are due to big business using power to continue production, over-preserving health of the planet in an ecological fashion, the response might be, well, who isn't cutting down the rainforest, right? And look at how many trees we plant these days. Or, well, you know, that company creates lots of jobs for America. These issues are done by removing any force made by the statement prior. This is done to try to devalue the basis of the original premise. Oftentimes, women enter speaking about something in particular like baseball or winning a presidency. The often common feeling or elephant in the room is that people call carve out a spot to appeal to a man's factual premise. Men throw faster and are more fun to watch. Men are an authority of baseball. We should listen to what a man says about sports. We shouldn't have to look on a woman's authority in order to understand football because women do not play football. Or that our great inventors and our presidents have been predominantly men, therefore there is an inherent gift predicated on the very fact that there has been a, a historical record proving this and that we assume that on those grounds that the role of an authority in any of these matters, any of these topics, have been dominated. Therefore, in conclusion, women's confidence is devalued in these arenas when they speak about them by the notion that it has been devalued systematically and it continues to be devalued by pointing to the force and evidence of the past. A very common example would be the highlighting of bitchiness. The perception of the woman is a bad person if she stands up and, and shows some teeth. That if men do it, it is expected. Therefore, they are still the same old, same old. There is a command due to the inherent role requests to present to their subject being as such. 
there is another expectation that there is a suggestibility of behavior that when a woman wants to just chill out have a beer watch a game is somehow super off the chain and is instead seen as an act unfit for a lady but there is still that central ideal in their current mode of being that they desire to do just those things in a similar fashion in a similar fashion, a man is seemed to be out of place when they are in the kitchen preparing things, preparing meals, helping out in the kitchen. There's a strategic play on where the man should be and where the woman should be and what they should be doing at a certain time. There's an ethic of simply helping out or helping with work or relaxing when you feel like it or doing what you want, you know, but coordinating a sort of role in what is expected. There is a standard to be constructed and understanding these roles and perceptions and conventions are at play in a social fabric, so too with speech. But I think it is also very hard for people to come out of the, the mode of existing that they're in because they're listening to all sorts of talk radio and, and talking points and, and discussion around the water cooler and discussion with their friends in X, Y, and Z setting. They have never formally studied argumentation or politics or the policies surrounding things or studied philosophy or sociology or read all all the numbers or or anything like this there's so much that is going in there are so many perspectives and there are things to be worked out and there is an interactional problem with things that are being discussed a lot of the times but there's all sorts of expectations surrounding what's going on and there is a way of approaching the interaction that there's an expectation on it it is presupposed and it is already laden within the minds of people approaching the issue a preconception but there are new conceptions coming to light, and there is also a presupposition on what it is supposed to be, so that is held onto, but no one's really a trained lawyer in any given context, or a trained philosopher, or something like this, so it's hard to be completely objective, let the power of the speech act hit as it does, uptake it the way it should, roll it around in your mind, and put it up against what it was previously up against. And then people don't have this sort of, of way of thinking. It's very hard to do that. And I would understand that, yeah, these locutionary elements uh, of force and of injustice will surely will permeate. I think more notably, when we start talking about gendered expressions, such as a trans person, where they should go to the restroom. Well, I don't want my daughter to be in the same restroom as someone who has a full-grown penis. Well, first of all, what if they have both naturally? Where are they going to go? Can't go into the male room. Yeah, that is a uh, full-grown vagina in a male bathroom. Where are you going to go? And in another instance, well, if you do have this full-grown penis and you identify as a female, would you not still be in a stall minding your own business? There is a sort of projection and supposition on the nature of what is happening. That there is a man going into a restroom in the context of my my small daughter being in the vicinity. And that, of course, is an act designed to turn you off of that. But if you could also look at it another way, well, this person is basically a female. This person is not going to be up to no good. And the thought isn't taken over to that regard. And there may be a pushback on that. Well, listen, this is a woman and the parts might not match or there might be another part or it's in transition and so forth. But the more greater reality surrounding that is intact and that the person that has to choose might feel at odds with going to the other restroom. 
we consider their feelings because they're essentially a woman in a, in a man's context and so forth and there's these these acts that take place that are designed to overthrow the power of one end bring it directly into the other side and speak through that method and give itself power by denying the power of any other speech acts surrounding it. It is framed in such a way. Some people might just be, be like, yeah, you shouldn't worry about going in the water. You won't be eaten by a shark. You're being paranoid. And someone might think, wow, how insensitive, you know, not to address my boundaries of I'm not going in the ocean. I'm, I'm afraid. And someone might break that down. But look, you know, going into certain kinds of waters with an X amount of people will give you a likelihood of being attacked versus the unlikelihood of not being attacked in other places that do not facilitate an attack that there's a different power of of looking at a statistic of how often you get eaten by a shark versus when it happens in a given context and how much power you let your fear have over you is another thing so it's also viewing and reasoning through why you're afraid of something why you have impressions in a certain way and how you are looking at it so having an inability to have the force of your own perceptions be undercut by another is also a, a thing that you're sort of quashing reality out of existence for your own right and claiming victimhood because your power is being taken away but there is a sort of power struggle we need to identify whether things are truly valid and that's a responsibility of the people talking to each other to be able to understand and transact in this way philosophy and the way in which we understand our world should be dialectical not in a monologous sort of fashion a sort of pre-pedestalization of what we have already conceived yes Rebecca Kukla's Performative Force, Convention, and Discursive Injustice in the Philosophy of Language. You know it's lit, but just make sure it's not gaslit. Thank you for joining me on this episode. Be sure to check out my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Solomon's Temple. I would appreciate a modest donation if you could. Thank you very much. I'll see you again next time.